I killed Aquababy. I killed Vigilante. I killed Archie. I'm a comic book <laughs> serial killer. Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we root for loot in the long boxes, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the fumigator of the funny papers herself, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> I don't know if I should be impressed by that name or deeply offended <laughs> that you called me a fumigator of any kind. <laughs> we have done over, I think we've done almost 70 episodes now. We always come up with different nicknames for, for each other. So I'm pretty happy that we haven't repeated any, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you're much better at them than I am. Usually I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot to do that. Let me try to come up with something <laughs> stupid on the fly. And it like only pans out like half the time, 50% ratio. <laughs> I like him. The magic of editing. <laughs> can never tell. The purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you can rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that really helps with discoverability. And today we are looking at The World of Krypton, a classic Superman comic that also has the distinction of being the first comic book miniseries. And we're extra excited because we actually have the man who wrote The World of Krypton, Paul Kupperberg. Hello. Hello. Nice to still be here. Yeah. Welcome back to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Would you mind taking a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm uh, Paul Kupperberg. I've written and edited comic books for DC and Archie and Bongo and others, and uh, worked on characters ranging from, you know, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, to uh, Zatanna. Get it? A to Z. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've also killed, uh, you know... Many characters. I killed Aquababy. I killed Vigilante. I killed Archie. I'm a comic book serial killer. You can use that in the introduction. Oh my God. Comic book serial killer. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's me. Well, welcome. We are super, super happy to have you. Thank you. All right. So before we actually start talking about the world of Krypton, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? And Paul, as our guest, you have the honor of going first. Well, if it's uh, comics related, I'm currently reading the Charlton Companion by uh, John Cook, hmm. which is published by Tomorrow's yeah. Books. Oh, nice. Charlton Comics was, you know, they're, they're near and dear to my heart. I read them as a kid. They were a comics publisher from the mid-40s to about 1985 or 6. They were the strangest publisher in the business. They operated out of Derby, Connecticut. They had their own plant where you started at one end of the plant with the editors and Usually, writer Joe Gill, who was on staff, who would just pound out pages by the, you know, by the ream, and uh, you get mm -hmm. to the other end. You, you'd move through the production department, through the printers, do the binder. You know, there was color separators there, and then they would put them on a truck, their own trucks, and send them out to be distributed. The very odd company started by two guys who met in jail. In, in the 30s, they were, what? yeah, yeah. the one guy, John Santangelo, was a publisher of music lyrics magazines, okay. and he was publishing them without securing copyrights permission. Oh, and wow. They used to put you in jail for that. Wow. So he did time for that. He met this lawyer in prison, and they teamed up, and when they got out, they started a publishing business. He started doing legitimate music lyrics magazines, including Hit Parader, which was, you know, lasted through, you know, my lifetime. Back before the internet, you couldn't look up lyrics. And by the way, yeah. when you look up lyrics on the internet, they're always wrong. What the hell is with that? These yeah. magazines, <laughs> there were magazines that would just publish music lyrics. And eventually they branched out and they would do interviews and articles and things like that. But anyway, they had this printing press on the premises and just to keep it busy, in 1945, you know, comics were the trend, so they started publishing comic books. They didn't care yeah. what they published. They just wanted those presses to be spinning. And, you know, they would pay the lowest wages in comics. When I started, I sold my first stories to them in 1975. It was five bucks a page for script. I oh, think wow. artists were getting like $35 a page for finished art. But, you know, Steve did go work for them because they left him alone. Mm -hmm. You know, Steve could do whatever the hell he wanted. And, you know, nobody said boo. They just handed him a check. 
So uh, they had a lot of great artists. You know, Tom Sutton was was a regular at Boyette, you know, a whole bunch of guys. And then there were also a lot of guys who couldn't get work elsewhere who, you know, would work for those rates. And then there were newbies like me. You know, when I started, my first story was drawn by Mike Zeck, who was himself just started. And John Byrne started there. Joe Staten started there. You know, lots of people. So uh, anyway, fascinating company, fascinating story in history and a really, you know, comprehensive. Jeez, uh, I've been involved with a documentary about the company for a while that trying to, you know, get funding to finish their post-production work. But, you know, mm -hmm. this is just like a deep, deep, deep dive in, into the company. It's fascinating. That's so cool. Is the documentary on Kickstarter or are they trying to do it privately? Yeah, privately. Okay. It's shot. I mean, you know, it started, they saw me doing a Charlton panel at a terrific con here in Connecticut years ago. And they, you know, they actually came into the panel to just sit down because they were, you know, their feet hurt from walking around the convention. And they came back to me the next day and said, you know, we've been thinking about because I had Denny O'Neill and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez on and, you know, mm. who also worked for them. And anyway, they decided that it's fascinating. They were filmmakers. They were looking for a subject and they decided to make the film based on that panel of ours. So, you know, I've been involved from the start and they talked to everybody who was still around. And they got a lot of these guys before they passed too. They got Denny, they got Joe Sin, you know, so lots of great people. So hopefully one day somebody will find the money and they'll be able to finish it up. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Wow. Yeah. All right, Jessica, you're up. So I watched the first few episodes of the anime series Death Note. Okay. And I really like it so far. I have not seen the film that was adapted into, I think it was a film or was it a series? I'm unsure. There was, they did a recent adaptation, but I'm watching the actual anime. They made a movie on Netflix. I know that was like, it was very, a movie. okay. Yeah. It was very know. not well received, like in large part because they like, I think they really whitewashed a lot of the characters and yeah. mm, whatever. Yeah. So I actually, I didn't watch that, but I saw it on the actual anime, saw it on Netflix and I was like, yeah, no, let's check out the original media here. Nice. I really like it so far. I really like the concept of the Shinigami being around and able to create some havoc without really being able to create too much havoc. They're pretty limited. The concept of the notebook is also really interesting. The ability to kill people without touching them, without being in the same place or time. And then there's the moral dilemma around using it and whether it's right to use it at all, even if it's coming from a noble place. So I'm about three episodes in. I'll be watching more of it to find out what is going to happen in the search for the person who's been killing people. They've figured out that there's some sort of a, a pattern. And this kid's just a high schooler. So it's yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I've heard nothing but good things about the anime. Yeah. It's been good. Well, Mike, what about you? I came across the first volume of the EC Archives Weird Science on Hoopla which collects several issues of the original series from the 1950s. So it's just, it's a big anthology of Silver Age sci-fi comic stories. The art's been remastered too, so the colors really pop. And there's also a forward by George Lucas talking about the influence Ooh. that comics, especially EC comics, had on him when he was growing up in Modesto. But the book is full of these really fun stories that are often kind of morality plays about unrestrained amoral science going awry. And the best part is every story ends with some kind of twist, which like I read these as a kid and I loved them. And so it, it's felt very nostalgic to read these stories while we've been enduring a bunch of rainstorms outside, like, you know, just curling up under a blanket with the dogs and, and this comic on my iPad. It's great. Yeah, that's cool. So is everyone ready to talk about World of Krypton? Oh, yeah. All Bye, right. Rao, let's go. <laughs> okay so before we actually start talking about the series paul how did you get started at dc comics and like how did you get involved with this project well i started dc comics i was you know just a young pup of a writer i was broken like i say in early 75 at charlton and i did a bunch of stories for them and in the meantime, you know, I knew a lot of people at DC had been hanging around the place since I was a kid as a fan. Paul Levitz and I used to publish a fanzine starting in 1971 called Etc., which later became the Comic Reader. And we developed into the big news fanzine of the time. You know, we were 
back in those days, we were selling 3,500 copies or something, you know, physical, physical copies that we produced on a typewriter, you know, in Paul's basement. And, <laughs> you know, so Paul got a job. He was hired by Joe Orlando first to write letter columns and then to be Joe's assistant when his regular assistant, Mike Fleischer, was, went on vacation. Paul took the, the summer job as assistant and, and Fleischer never came back and Paul never left and, you know, eventually became publisher and president of the company and, and always holds it over me. He's such a, yeah. anyway, anyway, at some point at that time, Paul was on staff and he was an assistant editor. And that was right around the time. This was 1970, 75, when they were starting up at the dollar comics. Okay. Mm. Yeah. We talked about all that on our episode about the DC Superstar special, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So there was the uh, Superman family and House of Mystery and GI Combat went to dollar comics format. And I got a call from Paul. Denny O'Neill was the story editor of Superman family. I think Joe Orlando was the editor. It was wacky. They had three editors for a while. It got a little strange. Mm -hmm. But anyway... Paul said, Denny needs a World of Krypton story. So I came up with something and pitched it, and Denny bought it. And it was a 10-page story that ran in the first Superman Family dollar comic issue. I don't remember the number. But Marshall Rogers was a youngster who drew that story. And yeah, and after that, I just started, you know, Paul gave me some House of Mystery had these introductory pages. There were mm -hmm. Five pages of intro spread throughout the issue. Three pages up front, one in the middle, and one at the end. And kind of be, you know, kind of tie the the issue together. So Paul yeah. threw me some of those. He threw me letter columns to write. And gradually I started picking up stuff from Jack Harris and, you know, other editors. And, you know, pretty soon they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So we read the World of Krypton collection via Hoopla. And the intro to the book is written by you. Yes. And I loved mm -hmm. your first point about how... There have been several versions of Krypton, and you always have to ask people which Krypton when they start to ask you about the planet. And I thought that was a really interesting point because it's it's kind of like Superman himself that you know people identify with certain versions of the character as sure. their Superman. And so I was wondering which versions of Superman and Krypton are yours? Like which ones did you feel like you were channeling when you wrote this series? Well, I grew up with the uh, the Weisinger era stuff, the the more mm -hmm. Weisinger books from the fifties and sixties. And once Mort was given free reign in the 50s, late 50s, it's when he started coming up with all these elements for Superman. You know, Superman used to be the sole surviving son. And then, well, except for the six million people in this bottled city here, <laughs> and except for this little girl who survived on another city that survived the explosion of Crypto Girl <laughs> on, on, on Argo City. And this and that. And he did Superman's Return to Krypton, which is a classic 50s, you know, book length novel that had Superman, you know, traveling back in time and visiting with his parents before he was born. You know, so there was this whole very rich world that Weisinger was creating. And, uh, you know, I was the right age. I was born in 1955. So I'm reading comic books. You know, I start looking at comics around 1959, 60 and reading them a year or two later. And, you know, this stuff is, you know, ridiculous enough that it's, you know, it's just a sweet spot for my age group. You know, Weisinger approached Superman like, you know, the character, it was like a 10-year-old fantasy. And he also had Superman act like a 10-year-old. You know, all the stories were about him pulling tricks on Lois and Lana Lang and trying to fool the, you know, they're trying to find his secret identity. And it's, oh, it's kind of like, you know, and if I, if I had superpowers, yeah, I'd play tricks on my mom and, and uh, you know, and mess with like, people's heads. Do you remember the old website called Super Dickery? And it was yes. the, the core premise was Super Superman's a dick. <laughs> and it was just no. covers of Superman being a well, dick to his well, friends. Superman wasn't a dick. Superman was a 10-year-old. <laughs> and 10-year-olds are dicks. <laughs> yep. Or, yep. All 10-year-olds are dicks, but yeah. not all dicks are 10-year-olds. That's right. That's right. That is true. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it, you know, it's funny how it shaped my way of thinking that as I got older, I went, holy crap, you know, what was, you know, how, mm -hmm. how could that be, you know, even the stuff Stan was doing at Marvel, it's like, you know, friendship is based on punching each other, even in the Marvel universe, you know, it's like the thing and the human torture, best pals, and they're always like, you know, and by the way, turn off the flame in the house, Johnny. Okay, <laughs> you know, and and why is the FF all dead from asbestos from cancer? 
I know, right? All those early issues, you know, there was, uh, you know, I'm sitting on the asbestos sofa read made for, turn off your flame. <laughs> for Christ's sake, you're wasting <laughs> energy. Close the refrigerator door, damn it. I'm old. I wanted to rant. Oh, no, it's great. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> but you know, oh, man. that stuff as a kid, you look at like, you know, oh, the thing can't just walk through a door. He smashes his way through the doorway. Right. And you look at that stuff and you go, well, yeah, you know, that's what you do. And, and you don't realize how ridiculous and overblown it is. And I think it's very harmful. <laughs> look what it did to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you may even become a, a comics creator no, of, please, you know. Please, I wouldn't, wish to, <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on an enemy. Oh, man. Yeah, watch out, kids. You might grow up to be like Paul. Yeah. So in that intro, you actually noted that there were legal, you know, in quotes, entanglements over the screenplay by Mario Puzo, which I'm sorry. Also, I did not realize that the man responsible for The Godfather gave us Superman the movie. Well, he gave us his name on the movie. The script was rewritten by various and sundry people, including the Newmans, Tom Mankiewicz worked on the screenplay. A lot of people worked on that script. Puzo. You know, Puzo, surprisingly, who had worked for Goodman at Timely, mm-hmm. he worked on the magazine side, on the men's magazines. Yeah, yeah. No, Puzo was a, it was an old-time hack. You know, he earned his stripes, you know, but he was suing them because of what they did to the script. Ah, And okay. so you, DC couldn't do anything that was a direct adaptation or based on the movie itself, other right. than, I think, one Superman the movie book they did, which wasn't any kind of fictionalization. But, you know, just photos and, and you know, stills and, right. and articles about it. But so they couldn't do anything there. And Puzo had been contracted to write the novelizations of the first two movies. Okay. But he never did. So there were these two novels, these novels that Elliot Magan wrote, Last right. Son of Krypton and Miracle Monday. That, I think I have Last Son of Krypton. If, I found that at a thrift store recently. Do read it. It's a great book. Elliot did a really great job on those books. He's, he's a really good writer. He also did a later novelization of uh, Kingdom Come, which is really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I just had to look up the photo because it's sitting in the other yeah. room. But it's, yeah, it is Superman, the original, <laughs> the exciting original story of Superman, Last Son of Krypton by Elliot Magan. And as a special bonus, there is a 16-page album of photographs from Superman the movie. Right. And that's oh. as close as they could get, which is right. fine. I mean, you know, frankly, a novelization of, you know, let's face it, a kind of silly movie. I mean, I love the movie, mm-hmm. but, yeah. you know, when you take it apart, it's, you know, it's very much of its time. And I'd much rather have what Elliot did than than the novelization yeah. of that. And if people are looking for it, Elliot republished the books and they're available on Amazon at a oh, re- great. At reasonable price. Yeah. No, I have a, an go. immense soft spot for the Superman movies. The Sarah had not seen them. And so, you know, one of our early dates was we went into San Francisco to the Alamo Draft House and they had a screening of the original Superman movie. Yeah. And I love that movie so much. It's so goofy and weird. And yep. Gene Hackman was so perfect. And Christopher Reeve was so perfect. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Margot Kidder was wonderful as Lois Lane. Like, they're all great. But anyway. I was on yeah. staff at DC doing the public relations job at the time when they were filming the movie. And so I got to see a lot of, you know, stills and a lot of the background stuff as it was going on. And when it finally debuted, I saw the first showing the first day at the Esquire Theater in Chicago, where I was living by then. And mm. just, I remember it vividly. It's one of the few movies that I could like, you know, Tell you the experience. Yeah, I love the movie, so cool. but it's yeah. silly. Uh, it's silly, yeah. I mean, like that's a lot. Of, that's <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a lot of comic absolutely. books too. That, sure. Yeah, you know. and the stuff was silly. And again, you know, remember the audience was you know was with thirteen year olds. You know, yeah. yeah. When I was growing up, they I was supposed to stop by you know by my bar mitzvah. You know, I should have been done, but right. you know, I'm one of those. You know, I was one of those freaky kids who kept going. But the comics were still, you know, 1968. They would still be in, you know, DC especially. Marvel took a stab at being a little bit more, you know, adult. But let's say, read, go back and read the stuff. Missed yeah. it. But, you know, it still wasn't meant for anybody above the age of 12. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so the fabulous world of Krypton was like a regular 
backup feature in Superman comics from the early 1970s on. And then there was an article in the April 2014 issue of Back Issue that says the stories that the World of Krypton miniseries were originally based on, those were originally scheduled to be published in Showcase 104 to 106. And they were supposed to tie in with the premiere of Superman the movie in 1978, but then they got delayed when the movie's release date got pushed back. And then it sounds like everything kind of got thrown out the window into heavy traffic when Showcase was canceled as part of the DC implosion, which again, we talked about in episode 48, focusing on DC's Superstar Holiday Special. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the stories got revised and then published as their own series. So they were, well, you know, I I think I was handed the assignment because I was kind of the resident Krypton writer at the time. I was writing a feature in Superman family called Nightwing and Flamebird. Right. Uh, which was Andorian superheroes, which ran about a year. And so, you know, I guess I was like the Krypton writer. So I got the gig to do the uh, show. Yeah, it was just another three issue arc of showcase. It wasn't, you know, that big a deal. And, uh, you know, I worked with Nelson Bridwell, who is another one of those, uh, is a figure from the time that, you know, most people don't know about, but deserves a lot more credit than he's ever gotten. He was a strange little man who is encyclopedic knowledge about DC comics, also about Shakespeare, the Bible, history, name it. He was some, he was just a savant. He just knew this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but he was kind of sickly and, you know, personally a little strange and off-putting to some, you know, he's a sweet man, but, you know, he was the guy who programmed all those DC 80 page giants, you know, in the late sixties and the hundred page super spectaculars and Mm-hmm. No, he was the guy who knew, you know, he later, he was a writer on Shazam, the Captain Marvel stuff with Don Newton. And it's still considered one, one of the best runs of the revived character because, you know, Nelson was also encyclopedic in his knowledge of Captain Marvel and all things. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, Nelson, you know, he knew this stuff with Klang and Seeker. He had been Mort Weisinger's assistant editor for years, you know, Mort had kicked him around for a long time before he went to work for Julie Schwartz and then Julie kicked him around. But so, you know, he had every incident in the history of Jurel's life. You know, he knew it. He kind of, you know, he's like, here's your shot list. You know, here's, here's, boom, here's, here's the high points to hit. And, you know, so it was an easy book to write because, mm. you know, I had all this stuff kind of, you know, handed to me. It's cool. Well, okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about the issues. So the first issue is written by you, Paul Copperberg, penciled by Howard Chaikin, inked by Murphy Anderson, colored by Adrian Roy, lettered by Ben Oda, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell. So Superman, in quotes, listens to the memory tape of his father, Jarrell that he found on the moon. This tape seems to be a combination of like a journal and visual memory. And through this, we learn the story of Jorel from his point of view. It shows us how he grew up to be one of the predominant scientists on Krypton. We meet various characters from the Superman mythology, including Jor-El's evil cousin, Cruel. Well, yes. yes. Chef's kiss that for was that in name. My notes. That's right. <laughs> you know, you name the kid Cruel, you're asking for trouble. I know. It's, you are. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> That's why we don't name children Adolf anymore. That's right. Yay. <laughs> Perfectly good and a great mustache style. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? The chaplain, gone. <laughs> Oh, man. So we then see him fall in love with his future wife, Lara Lorvan. When he meets Lara, they are working at a research facility, and she is a trainee astronaut. After he figures out an anti-gravity system, Jarrell designs an unmanned anti-grav spaceship. Lara stows away on it because she doesn't want to miss the opportunity to get into space. Since Krypton's space program is going so slowly, it'll be years before she has another chance. And the ship malfunctions and crashes on Krypton's moon. Oy. Wegthor, and so Jorel stows away on another unmanned spaceship. And by the way, whoever is handling security at these launch sites needs to be fired. Yeah, <laughs> he heads to Wegthor to rescue her, and then later on, Jorel proposes a new prison system that will place prisoners in suspended animation above the planet while they're reformed via hypno training. And Lara proposes to Jorel after the Science Council approves of this plan. They go to the Matricomp, which is like a predictive computer that has to approve of a match before the wedding can happen. A ship with a prisoner is sent into space, but it crashes, and the prisoner revealed that he gained superpowers. But Jarrell figures out that these powers were created with anti-grav devices, and he captures the criminal while uncovering a conspiracy. Meanwhile, Aner Mu, I'm not quite sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but we'll go with it, is sent by the Matricomp to inform Lara that her marriage to Jarrell wasn't approved. 
Matricomp announces that Aenormu is actually the perfect match for Lara. And then when Jorel investigates what's going on, it turns out that Matricomp fell in love with Lara and Aenormu was an android who collapsed when the Matricomp committed suicide rather than be reprogrammed. Okay, now I'm embarrassed. Go ahead. Yeah. Cyrano and- de Bergerac at its finest. Oh, God. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, it didn't want to lose the ability to love, which I thought was, like, Um, it's kind of tragic, but it's also very silly. That is really tragic. Well, well, this whole thing is tragic. Listen. Yeah. And then. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, we we end with Jor-El and Lara's wedding, and we see that Superman actually attended the wedding in person. And then we're told we'll learn how that happened in the next issue. All right. So, Jessica, what happens in issue two? You mean that was just one issue? That was that just was literally one issue. One issue. Oh my. Yeah. You know what? Today, that would be two years of continuity. Right? Like, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. That'll bang for your buck back then. What was it? 25 cents? Something like cover that. Price. Oh my goodness. Wow. And they were, yeah, no, and they weren't even 30 pages. I think they were like 22 pages. These are like 22, 24 pages. Yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, on the <laughs> art, I should mention the, 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 book, the, the book was laid out by my brother. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh. Um, that's so cool. It's very neat. Wow. A family that makes comics together. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that didn't happen exactly. much. Now, what was it? It was 40 cents. Okay. 40 cent cover 40 price. 40 cents. Nice. Wow. Still a bargain. Well, just wait for this one, because this issue is also a doozy. I don't, I don't know if I could take it, but go ahead. <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> so, this issue is called, This Planet is Doomed. And, of course, was written by our friend here, Paul Kupperberg. Art by Howard Chaikin and Murphy Anderson. Lettering by Shelley Lefferman. Colors by Jerry Serpy. E. Nelson Bridwell was editing. We are back at it with Superman watching more of his father's thought diaries. Jor-El's father invites both himself and Lara out to see him in the Antarctic city, but his dad immediately pulls him aside alone upon arriving, needing assistance and starts telling him about an extinct people, the Krull. But suddenly they are attacked by an iceberg and his father is injured by the attack. Very severely injured. He's placed in a pod to rest. He's brought back to Dr. Gaff where Lara and Kal-El, a version of Superman who had gone to the past, were both there, as we're told in an editor's note. And I did like that retconning that we were talking about. Of We had talked about some of your influences, Paul, of Superman having gone back in time in the older comics and having right. done a little bit of interacting. And so I thought this was a nice little nod to that well, situation. There is nothing in yeah. there. These stories are all pulled from... You know, from the canon, for the most part. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's really neat. So, Jor-El's diary notes that Superman cares almost as if this were his own father, which is very funny. Through some discovery, Jor-El finds out that his father had discovered unstable elements in the core of the planet. And upon further investigation, Jor-El found that the whole planet had mere years before a planet-wide catastrophe that effectively would and the planet. Everyone is pretty much on board with the plan to try to save the planet based on the specs, but Zorel, Jorel's younger brother, seems a little salty about all of it, and this disagreement causes a rift between the political factions on the planet, with them all disagreeing on how to move forward. Jorel suggesting to leave the planet that will soon be destroyed. The others are accusing him of fear-mongering to cause them to pour money into space travel. So even though he didn't have the approval of everyone, he secretly starts planning an escape. So his father on his deathbed tells him that they found a ship that the Krull left and that that could be the planet's salvation. Meanwhile, Jor-El and Kal-El go out to try to get ship and fuel to try to get everybody off the planet. And Kal-El brings this one-of-a-kind robot that he's super excited about all of which are swooped up along with the entire city of Kandor by Brainiac. So Jor-El gets a message that Kal-El has been swooped up as well, and Lara reveals that she is gasp-pregnant. So time jump to the baby being born, and they name him Kal-El. Very cute. 
Now, Jorel is still looking for a habitable planet, but so far he's only run into a little thing called the Phantom Zone. And then develops the Phantom Ray as a way to exile criminals and hopefully get more people on his side politically so he could convince folks on the whole space arc situation. But he gets terribly embarrassed on live TV. His Phantom Ray is looked at as dangerous and he definitely didn't gain any political traction. But that is until his luck turns around when the person who embarrassed him was arrested. Jor-El gets elected for the position he wants. And when one of his staff ends up finding the Krill ship, it looks like they may have a brighter future ahead through leaving the planet. At the end, we see a computer reconstruction of events showing us that former chief rocket scientist Jax Ur has gone rogue with plans to make nukes and rule Krypton. Jor-El and team take the Krill ship out for a spin into the atmosphere to test its abilities and Jax Ur sends a rocket out hitting them and the Krill ship lands and blows up a village. Jaxter was sentenced to go into the Phantom Zone. But despite that justice, quote unquote, being served, Jor-El still feels the misery of the situation as he feels just as hopeless because of the loss of the ship that was supposed to save them all. Man, <laughs> it's a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> it really was, man. Man, and I, we always like strip these things down to try to give a nice yeah. cohesive. Yeah. But if I didn't tell you one of these things, yeah. none of the rest of it would have made any sense. No, and you know, flipping through it and looking at the amount of copy on the page, on the pages, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we got paid by the word, so we would just. Right. <laughs> Good. All right. So that brings us to issue three, Thank which God. again, written by Paul Copperberg, penciled by Howard Chaikin, inked by Frank Chiaramonte. Colored by Jerry Serp, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, and edited by E. Nelson Bridwell. So this issue opens with Jorel sending Jack Sewer to the Phantom Zone before arguing with the Science Council about how Krypton is, you know, doomed. And nobody else will listen to him. So he starts working in secret to try and save Krypton while prosecuting and exiling criminals to the Phantom Zone while also serving on the Science Council. He starts conducting secret rocket experiments, which includes sending Superman's puppy, Crypto, out in a test rocket before it got knocked off course by a meteor and eventually lands on Earth to have adventures with Superboy. He manages to get a Kroll spaceship engine and cannibalize the parts and then also contracts Scarlet Fever from the jungle that he was in when he did so and the Phantom Zone criminals psychically manage to control him into almost releasing them with a projector before Lara stops him and nurses him back to health. Jarrell manages to send the Phantom Zone projector into space helps Largand, a.k.a. Mon-El, get off Krypton and head towards Earth before he can get arrested by the Council after he crash lands on Krypton. And then we get to see baby Kal-El sent off in a rocket by his parents, even though the ship's big enough for the baby and his mom. Lara refuses to leave her husband behind, and the series ends with this one final scene of the rocket crashing, the Kents finding the baby, and we close on Superman, saying that even though the Kents are the parents who raised him, he will never forget Jor-El, Lara, or the world of Krypton. Man, feels very much like a uh, Titanic door situation, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Woof. Okay. Yeah, so... <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is why I don't go back and reread a lot of this stuff. Oh. <laughs> Man, it... I... I was young. I was a kid. What did I know about Krypton? Come on. It, well, you know, it's funny you say that because, like, I go back and read old articles that I wrote, and and I inwardly cringe, and I'm like, I don't know, it was good enough that they paid me, so I'll I'll take it. Oh yeah, listen, um, I I don't apologize. I should, but I don't apologize for anything I wrote. You know, I recognize that. You know, I I grew up wanting to write comics in the worst way, and yeah. for many years I did. So um, you know, but it takes a while. It, it takes you know, like I said, didn't. Like Howard and I talked about it in the book. Yeah. It, it takes 10 years to learn your shit. At least. I like, yeah. I actually have notes about that conversation with Howard and we'll talk about that later on. All right. But, then. but I'm curious, what was everyone's favorite element of Krypton in this miniseries? Well, I'll go first. I really liked the idea of being able to retcon, like I had mentioned before, some of the more interesting aspects of Superman lore, like the discovery of the Phantom Zone and how Kal-El got his name. And just to be able to look back and say, 
how would that have come about in Kal-El's world as it first happened? And I like that both Jor-El and Lara get to be characters in their own way. The fact that Lara was training to be an astronaut and Jor-El was clearly a genius in his own right with some nice touches like him discovering the secret to anti-gravity. So as a writer, I can only imagine that it must have been really neat to be given the opportunity to kind of write in some of those backstory details. It was. I mean, you know, it was a case of stuffing 50 pounds into a 20 pound sack. You know, <laughs> Nelson was obsessive about these things. I later did the Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes miniseries, another three issue minis that right. Nelson plotted. And it was the same thing. It was just, you know, it, it you just need every panel you can jam into a page to get it all in there. It's, you know, it wasn't about style or presentation. It was about information. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, so he wanted it, he, he crammed it all in there. So what is your favorite element of Krypton? I'm curious. I always love the thought beast. Mm. I always love this animal that you know, could look at you and you could see reflected in his little TV screen in his head, you know, what he's thinking, yeah. you know, which is usually eating you. But yeah, I love that, that, that wacky stuff. You know, there, there was a waterfall of fire and there was the crystals mm. forest and, and, you know, there was all kinds of just, you know, it was just wacky kind of fantasy elements that Weisinger threw into it, you know, throughout those 50s and 60s stories. And it just, again, didn't have to make sense. It just had to make his 10-year-old readers go, cool, you know, yeah. or whatever they said in 1962. Probably Ginchy. I don't know. I don't remember lingo from then. But, you know, so all that stuff is just, it's goofy, you know. And I'm struck by listening to it about what a fascistic planet Krypton was. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, pretty much what a fascist Jor-El was. It's yeah. like, man. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I'm kind of right there with you. Like, my favorite thing about it is how it feels like this classic science fiction story that's, you know, focused more on the dream of a sci-fi, in quotes, utopia, as you noted. Yeah. It's, you know, it's got the fascist elements. But I love all the strange, fun details, like the fact that they built a spaceship out of gold because gold was so common, it was actually the cheapest thing yes. to build it out yes. of. Right, right. <laughs> well, you it's know, not anti-gravity. What the hell? Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't matter because uh -huh. like, it's just, it, you know, the weight's going to be negated. Right. Or like how particularly adept students would go into like kind of like the AP courses, but it was, I guess, directly like yeah. injecting information into their RNA, which I was like, all right, cool. Right. <laughs> like all of this felt like like stuff you would see in articles that were written in popular science that like were speculative from like the 1950s and 60s. Sure. Well, you know, Mort Weisinger came out of the science fiction world. He started out yeah. as a science fiction fan. He and Julie Schwartz were friends. They met in, in the early 1930s and they, they both lived in the Bronx and, and were science fiction fans and met through a science fiction club and did fanzines back then and started, a, they were both literary agents of science fiction writers throughout yeah. the 1930s and into the 40s before Mort went to become an editor for the science fiction magazines. And in 44, Julie was hired by DC. But before then, you know, that was his world. He was, you know, he sold Ray Bradbury's first stories to the magazine. So, you know, so th that was the world they came from. And Julie, uh, who I knew very well, you know, he never lost his love for that stuff. And he had these reference books in his office that were, you know, back then in the 80s that were 40-year-old science textbooks, you know, high school science textbooks or, you know, on the environment or on animal, whatever it was. And he would like pluck them off the shelf and flip through them for ideas, mm -hmm. you know, or, really cool. or for text pages or whatever. So that was very much in his thought, you know, that was very much in, in, in the type of comics that these guys did. You know, yeah. you could see like the best comics that Julie Schwartz ever edited were science fiction stuff, you know, Strange Adventures and Mystery in Space. That, that was his mm -hmm. true, you know, that was his true love. Yeah. So like, is there a Krypton story that you never got a chance to write, but you wish you could have? I guess I always kind of wanted to do the, like the last day of Krypton, but not through any familiar eyes, mm. you know, through another character. There's someone who I don't even know, but just someone who has a different stake. I mean, everybody had the same stake in, in that moment, but, you know, who came at it from a different point of view. We always saw it was like, here's what Joel and Lara saw when it was happening. Here's what Superman saw when it was happening. You know, I'd, I'd like to have gone at it from somebody else's point of view who could go, you son of a bitches, you're the ones who made it happen. You know, you're. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I would read the hell out of that story. Yeah. Oh, same. Well, I, same. I, I've got the, got about 20,000 words of a novel 
that's, you know, essentially a Superman pastiche that plays with the origin in that way, you know, so. Nice. But let's see if I can find the time and the energy to finish it, but. Well, if you do, please come back on the show oh, and talk to us about please. it. Like, we would love Let to have you know talk because, about it. <laughs> and I would love to read well, it. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's see if it gets done. But yeah, you know, the whole thing about the presentation of Superman and the way we feel about him and see him, you know, he's a very powerful character and always has been. You know, I think he's, you know, I consider him the Ur character of comic books. Everything is, even though the tropes came that based around him came from other places, you know, the costume and the tights and the this and the cape. And he himself, the presentation of Superman, is the basis of all superheroes going forward. Even Batman, you know, who yeah. one would think maybe owed more to the Phantom or something. But, you know, years ago, John Byrne and I were talking about it, and we were actually bitching and moaning about what the current crew was doing to our Superman. Because, you know, we both had... You know, John did several years on Superman, as did I. Right. And we both had strong feelings for the character. And we're ranting, you know, like, oh, those kids today, they're really strong. And I had to stop at one point and go, you know what? You know, like our Superman, the real Superman that we're, that we're complaining, the one we grew up on, that's not the real Superman. The only real Superman that was ever done was done by Siegel and Schuster. Right. The second anybody else started working on that on that character he changed it doesn't matter if it's the artist or the writer it became a different character and every person who's had a hand on the character has left their imprint on it so by the time john and i you know i'm doing superman in 1980 whatever one or two or three and john does it in 86 it's been through 40 years of other people layering their stuff on top of it and you know you yeah. read one of my superman stories and you read a Siegel and Schuster Superman story, and they're vaguely related, but you know that ain't mine. Is not the real Superman. Theirs is. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost so, like playing telephone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's also a little bit like the ship of Theseus, where it's like if you replace all these parts, like is it still the same ship? Right. You know. But yeah, I like that. That's really cool. So. Obviously, the world of Krypton wound up being a hit and kicking off a new era for comics where miniseries played a major role because DC's next miniseries was the 1980s, The Untold Legend of the Batman, which was one of the first comics I ever read. Mm -hmm. My grandma bought it for me when I was visiting her in Texas at the supermarket. It was like this little kind of like digest sized black and white comic. Oh, that was the Thor paperback reprint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this was like 1986, seven, something like okay, that. Yeah. Yeah. They, and then, they also did the world of Krypton as a uh, paperback. Yeah, I, I found that out when I was researching this. That's super cool. Like, And there were also like audio cassette narrated comics as well. They would come with like an audio cassette that you could play. Yeah. And I'd want to hear it, but... I do too. I want to track it down, but it's expensive. <laughs> and then after that, there were three more limited series. There was another Krypton book called The Krypton Chronicles. There was The Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes book that you mentioned earlier. And then there was Tales of the Green Lantern Corps. And then... With miniseries proving successful, DC began trying out longer limited series, which they dubbed Maxi Series. The first limited series to run for 12 issues was Camelot 3000, right. which we actually talked about a bit in last year's Pride episode that focused on queer kissing in comics because that features the first lesbian kiss in comics. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then from there, things really took off. We saw major event comics take hold in similar maxi formats, and that led to multi-title crossovers. And... All of these storytelling formats are major parts of the industry now. So, like, I gotta ask, what's it like knowing that something you wrote wound up having such dramatic and long-lasting ripple effects for the industry? Well, I mean, you know, it's gratifying. It's cool that, you know, I was able to, you know, leave a little mark there. But, you know, I'm kind of of the belief that if it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. You know, right? like, this thing was happening because while you're talking about the rise of all these you know, events and interconnected things, you're neglecting to mention that was happening as the comic shop market was growing and right. we were losing. The, so the market was changing. It wasn't that, you know, that was the reason for the change. That was why we could do many series. That was why, you know, you put out a three issue series of a regular, I mean, DC did a lot of them in the seventies, but that was mostly canceling shit real quick. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. like it was intended. You know, press was not intended to be a two-issue miniseries. It was just canceled. Yeah. Uh, so. We have talked about Prez many times. Well, how could you not? Mm -hmm. I love <laughs> Prez so much. 
So, you know, all this, and they, they did great. You know, they did the Secret Six, talking mm-hmm. about E. Nelson Bridwell. You know, he, he did that. That was, that only lasted six issues. They, they had a moment there in 68 where they were trying things, you know, and most of them obviously didn't work. You know, you had the Maniacs and you had Insurier Five and you had weird, weird books. But, mm-hmm. you know, that was when Carmine became editorial director and, you know, the superhero stuff was floundering. And Carmen yeah. was just like, let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks. So that's how you wind up with Batlash, you know. But yeah, it was the comic market that enabled all that stuff, you know. If you put a three-issue thing on a newsstand-only book, you know, distributors would go, you know, they didn't want number ones really to begin with. They wanted tried and true. You know, back in the early 60s, there was a whole slew of DC number ones that didn't have a number one on the cover because it was a detriment. Justice mm-hmm. League of America, Green Lantern, uh, a couple other books didn't have a number one on the cover because readers, you know, that's why Flash, when it was revived, was revived with the old numbering, started with 105. Because a kid will see that on this and go, 105 issues. This must be great. You know, this has lasted. That's so fascinating, mm-hmm. especially with, you know, the speculator markets that have gone on since the 80s and 90s and how it's all about first appearances and new number ones. And things like that. It's really interesting to think about how that consumer mindset has changed. Well, you know, it became, I don't know how it happened. You know, I remember, you know, when I had to pass up the opportunity of buying a Superman number one for a hundred dollars because who had a hundred (laughs) bucks? You know, I think the owner of Mile High Comics occasionally talks about how he basically. Sure. He spent, he spent every, yeah, yeah, he sent something on. I can't remember how much he spent, but it was an action comics number one. It was, it was like twelve hundred dollars or something like that. Yeah, but this was you know, and this was back in the seventies when that was an unfathomable amount of money, and you know, and then Action Comics has since gone on to set like the record for a comic book option for sure. millions of dollars. But I know. remember when the record was you know two thousand dollars, and that made the newspapers. Yeah. You know, yeah. I probably saw the article clip somewhere, but it, it just you know it became a whole different thing when when there became money in it. You know. A hundred bucks wasn't, you know, a hundred dollars for Action Comics number one. Again, you know, nineteen seventy one, a hundred dollars is a lot of money, certainly for a sixteen year old. But yeah, you know, I don't think it compares to the three point seven million or whatever you'd have to pay for it today. Well, no, that's Action Run, but still, I, you know, yeah, it's like I mean, I spend more money than I should on comic books, especially old comic books, but. There's a certain limit. I've yet to spend two grand on a comic, so. <laughs> I've never spent more than $10 on a comic. Mm. <laughs> that was, I paid that for showcase number four. Nice. So, yeah. So, this book was written in 1979, which was right in the middle of the Bronze Age, which mm-hmm. was from 1970 to 85. And that feels like a pretty appropriate thing because you have a new book out, Direct Conversations, Talks with Fellow DC Comics Bronze Age Creators. Yes, I do. And. You very graciously sent us a PDF of the book to check out. I loved reading these stories that you traded with all these other creators. There were several yeah. that I enjoyed, but one of my favorites was during your interview with Howard Chaikin, the artist for the world of Krypton, where he revealed Carmine Infantino hated him because he was so tight with Gil Kane. And it was <laughs> it was so yes. cool to learn that kind of gossipy behind the scenes stuff. Like I lived for that. And I was wondering. I love it. What was the most interesting thing you yeah. learned when you were talking to all of these Bronze Age creators? You know, it, it was something from everybody for the most part. I love like Michael Uslan talking about how, when Bronze Age stuff, but he's talking about how the first Batman movie where like his job was to keep Tim Burton away from the silly shit in the, in the old Batman comics. Because, you know, he said, I had just seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure and, and, you know, I can't imagine what he would have done with the 1950s Jack Schiff stuff if he had read that. So, you know, he kept them pointed at Neil Adams and Marshall Rogers and stuff like that. But I think my favorite stuff was actually my talk with Paul, with Levitz. You know, I've known Paul since we're 15, no, since we're 13, 14 years old from middle school. And, uh, you know, I was there while he was going through his, you know, his career. But he didn't talk about it a lot because it was his business. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a mensch and he doesn't mm. talk out of school. But here he's talking about, and he starts going into, you know, here he is, this kid coming in, taking over the business side of things from Saul Harrison and all these guys who have been running the company. And he's talking about, you know, how they ran the place and 
you know, just it was just fascinating to me that it had been so, you know, he's like, he said, these guys, like, they didn't look at the comics as comics. They could have been doing, you know, they could have mm. been in the shirt business. And they didn't care what color shirt they're selling, you know, whereas when he came in and was looking at things like royalty and stuff, you have to know which color shirts are selling so you can pay the appropriate people. But anyway, it was just, you know, him dealing with these names, these Warner's executives that I'd seen around the place, but never really had much contact with. Just to hear those stories about, you know, about him and, and Carmine and Saul Harrison, you know, Saul Harrison had been in comics forever. Saul Harrison, who was president of the company, had been, had literally worked on Famous Funnies number one. Yeah. You know, had, had you know, we, we used to joke oh, yeah. that, that Saul stapled Action Comics number one, you know, and, and Jack Adler, <laughs> his production manager, had been there almost as long. But Saul was running the place. He wasn't a businessman. He was, he was an artist. And he, and Carmine had taken over as editorial director. And Carmine was a great artist, but not a manager. Mm -hmm. And certainly not a businessman. You know, Carmine was a bit of a dick. And, uh, you know, and he could be, you know, just very strong-willed. And he said, but at one point Paul says, and, you know, Sal, Jeanette's coming in. And, but they still need Sal to stay because Jeanette has no experience in comic books. So he, they need him there. But he doesn't want to, you know, he's not going to split credit with her. Hey, it was this whole thing. You read the book. And Paul says, Sal. You know, I guess he felt he'd been working for that idiot all these years. So he wanted to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so like you're calling Carmine an idiot. This is, <laughs> you know, this is great. You know, I, I love Carmine. Well, what a pain in the yeah. ass, you know. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, that, that stuff, the, the stuff Paul talked about, just the business side of things. It, you know, him bringing it really into the 20th century, bringing the business side into the 20th century. Yeah, you know, I'd never heard, he'd never talked about that stuff before. It, it was fascinating to me that every single conversation I went into did not go the way I thought. That's it great. Would. I had, you know, like for the first bunch of guys, I had you know, questions and, and timelines and all this stuff. And it was just like, you know, after about 15 minutes, like, you yep. know, out it goes. Doesn't matter. We're just <laughs> talking here. So, you know, it, it was almost everyone was revel revelatory. That's great. Okay, so where can people buy your book? Wherever finer books are sold, if they happen to be on Amazon.com, or uh, they come to my website, paulkupperberg.net, where they can order direct conversations or any of my books directly from me. I will sign and personalize and ship them out with my own two hands. Awesome. We will include links to that in the show notes. Is everybody ready to discuss brain wrinkles? My brain has been wrinkled for years. Sure. Awesome. <laughs> we are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing comics or comics adjacent that has been stuck in our head lately. So, Paul or Jessica? Well, I've kind of been thinking about that dreamy James Gunn mm. and uh, Peter Saffron, who, who I don't know, but his name sounds delicious. They both took over as head of Warner Studios, you know mainly to direct the superhero DC stuff. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Gunn has been very generous in his acknowledgement of my influence on things like the Suicide Squad movie and, and the Peacemaker TV show. And we've, you know, we've chatted, we've traded quips across Twitter. And I have pushed the series I created Checkmate at him any number of times because just a mat. I don't know if you're familiar with the series. I am. I haven't read it all, but I yeah. know it at least. So, uh, you know, I, like it would make a kick-ass, uh, you know, show set in the DCU, certainly. So I've, you know, and since his uh, take on the, on the movies and stuff is kind of in the Amanda Waller universe, mm -hmm. and Amanda Waller was the queen of Checkmate, you know. So, yeah, I'm thinking of James Gunn. Sigh. <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious to see where things go from now because... I haven't really enjoyed much of the DCEU except for the stuff that he's had his fingers on. So, yeah. All right, Jessica, how about you? Well, mine is actually about the MCU. Oh. So that's fun. In the sense that I think I'm starting to, to feel a max saturation with superhero movies right now. I'm starting to feel it. There have been so many MCU films that have dropped recently. It's once again feeling like it's too much to keep up with sometimes. Like, don't get me wrong. And sorry, Paul, I know from reading your book that you're on the other side of this fence, but I'm a Marvel girl. 
However, it sometimes feels like fans have to do a lot of work and spend a lot of time keeping up with the MCU and all of its glory. Like, the movies are great when I do get to them, and I've heard others voice kind of similar opinions recently. So this isn't 100% an original thought, but I definitely agree with the sentiment that fans seem to be needing some space or respite or a breather from the overall universe, or I don't know, maybe that's just me. <laughs> I don't know. You're also not obligated to see every single movie. Yeah. It's hard, though, because they do try to loop all of the, you know, it feels like you are missing a piece of it sometimes. If you don't see that last film, there's a chunk you don't like necessarily catch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. No, it gets tiring. <laughs> like when you try to keep up with all of it. It really does. I mean, catch them when I can. My girlfriend does no particular She's out of town now for a couple of weeks. She goes, you can watch all the musicals and superheroes you want now. It's like, well, I'll mm -hmm. watch the musicals, but <laughs> eh, superheroes, not so much. But yeah, I, I, I can take or leave a lot of them. You know, we're living in a world where, you know, where 99% of the people say, I'm a big comic book fan, meaning they watch the movies and they've never read a comic book. Yeah. Right. You know, I've kind of learned to separate in my mind the comic books from the movies because, you know, fortunately... No matter how much they fuck up the movie, the comic book still exists. Yeah. Or vice yeah, versa. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, Mike, what about yourself? So mine is that we just had a new comic store open in the same spot where Brian's Comics in Petaluma was. The grand opening was yesterday. It was a ton of fun. Sarah and I took the kids. The store is named Ivy's Hideout. It's got this really cool Poison Ivy theme. I shared a video on our TikTok page for that. It's not a new comic shop, so you can't set up a pull list, but it's got a ton of old toys, comics, and other cool stuff in there. No dollar bins yet, but you know they've got a bunch of inexpensive back issues, and I found some cool stuff in there. But when I was chatting with one of the shop owners, they made a comment about how Brian probably got burnout dealing with Diamond Comic Distributors, and mm. that was not really surprising. It seems like a lot of the regular comic shops in the Bay Area are making posts on their pages about how diamond shipments are late or damaged and they're asking customers to be patient. And during the pandemic yeah. lockdowns, DC and Marvel and IDW all partnered with other distributors. So I'm wondering how much longer Diamond is going to be in business if other publications start ditching them too and going with other groups. And based on all the headaches that Diamond seems to be causing shops and comic fans, maybe it isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, the business is changing once again. Again, in the Paul Levitz interview, he talks about, you know, where I mentioned how back in the early 70s, a lot of guys came to the business thinking comics would be dead in three or four years. And they were just going to ride out the wave and then go off and have careers in other arts. And, you know, and Paul goes on to say, he makes the argument that he thinks, in fact, that the comic book business of the 1960s and early 70s did die. And that mm -hmm. gone through several iterations of you know the business we went from the newsstand model to the comic shop model comics went from being an impulse item available everywhere to being you know a destination item the pricing the this to that the aim of the audience you know according to you know his way of thinking and, and i kind of agree with it the business has died several times and yeah so the death of diamond and i know people have problems with it and, you know i have had problems just in principle, I mean, you know, I've known Steve Jeppy forever. You know, he's a sweet guy. He takes my calls when, whenever I've called him. <laughs> you know, it may be that it's just time. You know, we've got on to the bookstore market, which yeah. is a, the prime source now. And, uh, you know, maybe the, the time of Diamond is, is running out. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This was really, really delightful. Like, and, and it was just yeah. so I am cool delightful. Yes. You are. <laughs> Anytime you want to come back on the show, we would love to have you. What do you do at Florida? <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back in two weeks with another deep dive. Before then, we'll have another Dollar Bin Discovery. And until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier, Mike Thompson, and Paul Kupperberg, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat.
Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookbombdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, or now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica's spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. And I also have my website is paulkumperberg.net. And we will include all of those links in the show notes. If you would like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. It's all right. I know that secretly you were just having such a miserable time that you just cowled yourself right out of the podcast. All right. <laughs> Didn't want to say, but no, no, really. Like, how bad could it be? I get to talk about me.